0: This is the Motorcycle Show episode seventeen for June thirtieth, twenty twenty two, and I'm Daddy No Fun,
1: <laughs> and I'm Christy Farrell.
0: Oh Jesus! <laughs> 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 <That's funny>. So <laughs> as you guys I'm also no fun. There's yeah, you're no funny. That there's no crash on this because he is somewhere in the Pacific Ocean, don't know where, on an aircraft carrier, and I have with me my friend. The original adventure goddess, the former co-host of the Motorific Podcast, owner of Motorific Media, and the only geologist you know, Christy Farrell. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: think Crash could be floating in the, what, Atlantic Pacific, no, on, a, Pacific. on maybe a pineapple?
0: P- possibly a, or a coconut. Yeah. One of the two.
1: Or maybe a pink sprinkled donut. One of those floaties.
0: Or <laughs> a little unicorn. <laughs> a little unicorn floaty. They so tow
1: those behind aircraft carriers, don't they? They have
0: a whole store on an aircraft carrier that just sells floaties. And yep. I guarantee a crash has got one. With his he's probably growing a porn stash right now, too. Cause that's Oof. like a big navy thing.
1: Uh, no thanks.
0: So you didn't know about my nickname, huh? Daddy knows. Nope. You? That came back in 2016 when it's actually the video of it is on the first Ride up the divide Instagram page. They were trying to fix a fuse in one of the motorcycles and I'm like admonishing them for using it too big of a fuse. Spencer looked at me and he's like, says you, daddy, no fun. And that just stuck. That was it. That's They've called me that and a lot of people have called me that in the motorcycle realm now for a long time. But and, anyway, just, and just for
1: not wanting to use a bigger fuse, huh? Well,
0: I was trying to. Every time I turned around, they were doing something stupid, you know. And I'm, See,
1: if, if my nickname were Mommy No Fun, it's because I just, you know, don't wheelie, don't do dangerous things, and et cetera, et cetera.
0: You're pretty safe. Uh huh. I've ridden with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some might say boring. No, not at all. You're you're a safety <laughs> rider. No, why would you keep doing There's stupid shit never ends well, right? Sure.
1: Or dangerous stuff.
0: Right. We know people that have done that and it didn't end well for them. I mean, in a lot of different cases, even not knowing any better, you know, just getting on a bike and not knowing what you're doing. But anyway, let me get back. We, so I just checked. It's been a, a minute since we recorded a show. Me and Crash It was back in April and I apologize for that, but life gets in the way sometimes. So we're going on almost two months without recording a show. And that that happens. He's, like I said, he's been on deployment. He's been in Japan, which we still could record then. It was a little bit tougher because of his internet connection. But now that he's on the ship, it's impossible. And I, I, you know, summertime, I did some traveling, as you know, Christy. I I Mm -hmm. was out west. And if I could have recorded where I was, I would have. I actually bought a Starlink for that purpose. But... It got delivered way late after we had to leave, so I couldn't take it with me. I came home from the trip, and it's sitting in the hallway here, so I'm going to ship it out to Las Vegas so it's on the van.
1: Hopefully, um, uh, Starlink's still in business by the time you get to use it.
0: Yeah, I saw that email. There's uh, something going on with Dish Network where they're trying yeah, to...
1: Dish is jealous, and I think it wants to take the frequency, take ownership of the frequency that Starlink works off of.
0: Yeah. And we, I, that's, I got that email asking them, asking me as a customer to send letters to, you know, my elected officials, which is, is a little scary because if that happens, I'm going to have a $700 brick that's shaped like a satellite dish.
1: It might be a good time to check that return policy.
0: <laughs> yeah. Marcy asked me that. She's like, what's, what's going to happen? I'm like, I don't know. We might be stuck with this thing. I, I can't imagine that they would do that, but they could. But, anyways, well, return so.
1: Return it now, buy it again later.
0: Yeah, I could. <clears throat> I mean, I haven't taken it out of the box or set it up or done anything with it. So, there's a possibility I could do that. Um, so, let's talk about your new motorcycle. So, for those of you that don't know, Christie's owned a bunch of different motorcycles. And uh, I'll just give him a little background on you. When you got out of college, and correct me if I'm wrong. You toured South and Central America on a small displacement motorcycle?
1: I was I was not that young. I was 30. You were? <laughs> yeah. When that was you, my, you got to my out of college. 30th birthday gift to myself was to learn how to ride.
0: So you'd already been working at the time?
1: Oh, yeah. I I started my career in 99
0: as a geologist? Yep. And then what did you do? Take a sabbatical or were you still working?
1: Um, Back, let's see, when I was 30, that would have been 2007. So yeah, I took like a year and a half off and I spent, I think it was the latter part of 2006, uh, backpacking through Europe and Asia. And then I was planning on doing some time in South America and kind of stupidly and very stereotypically didn't want to plan my travel around a bus and sitting next to farm animals. <laughs> so I thought, hey, maybe I should just ride a motorcycle. Other people have done it.
0: Right. And that So instead of just learning how to ride a motorcycle, you decide to go to a foreign country and learn how to ride a motorcycle.
1: Well, I, I did learn how to ride a motorcycle because the um, two-day MSF course that I took said I could ride. And then the DMV said I could also pass a test. So, they gave me my license, and I was like, somebody believes in me.
0: <laughs> so, what was the impetus to do what you did, though? After you learned how to ride it, why wouldn't you tour the U.S.? and Instead, you go...
1: Oh, I had every intent of going to South America and not sharing my travel with chickens and rice bags uh, on a bus. So, I just thought, learn to ride a motorcycle, and then I can control my own schedule.
0: Okay. That makes sense. But... You weren't, I mean, the thought of that, honestly, I got to tell you, it freaks me out a little bit. You weren't worried about that at all?
1: I. Some people think I'm insane. <laughs> some people bought life I mean, insurance
0: policies on me.
1: Maybe a I'm little bit, name names. Just a
0: tiny bit crazy.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I had never ridden outside of a parking lot in Southern California for that two-day test MSF course. And then I jumped on roads in Quito, Ecuador. And then tried to buy a motorcycle. Um, dropped a few.
0: <laughs> wait, 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 wait. What did you bring down there? Nothing I didn't
1: bring anything. I brought gear, which okay. arrived in plain brown packaging.
0: <laughs> huh, smart. Because
1: I was trying to hide it from yeah. the parent at the time. But um and and really not fabulous gear either we're talking 2007 so that wasn't a i mean i don't i don't even know how many uh, of the brands that i'm currently aware of were operating with women's gear back in 2007 and that's one of the ways that i met joanne afterward when we did motorific was wow where were you in 2007 when i was looking for gear
0: right joanne being your co-host from the podcast yeah, yeah. Did you have like a mentor at the time? Were you going to somebody for advice or what were you using magazines? Like how did you get your information?
1: For traveling in South America or motorcycles in general? The
0: motorcycles first.
1: Um, Well, funny enough, when I was uh, traveling in Europe, I was uh, on a trip with my brother. He had always wanted to do the Trans-Siberian Railway. So I bought him a ticket to come to London and then fly with me to Vladivostok. And on that train... I bought a bunch of books, had them shipped to his house, and said, hey, the only thing you're required to do is bring all these books from Amazon so I have something to read while I'm sitting locked in a box traveling across Russia. And he only brought two of the eight books that I bought, one of which was Motorcycling for Dummies, <laughs> and the other was a slightly more technical motorcycle uh, you know, manual. And uh, I read Motorcycle, Motorcycling for Dummies, cover to cover twice.
0: <laughs> so I'm sure there was a lot of good basic information in there to get you started. Did you read before you went? Did you read anything like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Repair nope. or like Jupiter's Travels or nope, nothing. Okay,
1: no, completely green in every in every way, shape, and form.
0: So you you get your gear in the mail, you pack it up, you get on a plane, you go down to where. Keto. Keto. And then what did you do? You bought a bike or rented one?
1: Bought a bike. So one of the people I reached out to um, who was not aware, I kind of wasn't completely honest or forthcoming about my lack of experience, um, was Glenn Hegstad. I read his book, Two Wheels Through Terror, Mm -hmm. and knew that he lived in Southern California, found his email, contacted him, and he connected me with some folks in South America. And I never met him until three years later, maybe after I came back from the trip. And so I went to South America, spent some time in Quito, rode a couple of used bikes, uh, went to a dealership, found a used 2006 Honda XL 200, which is like a dual sport.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that bike was the police bike for Quito. So I knew that that motorcycle was fairly common in the country and across South America was a familiar bike that mechanics would be able to work on, that they would have aftermarket parts for. And it was also manufactured in Manaus in Brazil. So it wasn't like I was going down there on a on a BMW GS or even for the time a KTM because ATM wasn't really supported in South America.
0: Right. So you get this bike and then you start based on what you had get you had a map a route what did you did you have plans where you were gonna I ha- go
1: I didn't really have a whole lot of plans the plan was there was no plan just head south and <laughs> I had uh, these cool maps at the time, which were called uh, Borch, which I think is a German company, mm-hmm. and they were kind of waxy and waterproof. And I was able to highlight my route, and they also showed gas stations, which was handy. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're not talking the iPhone era or smartphones at all. Did you speak I had a, Spanish when you were? I had a yeah,
0: okay. fluent
1: in Spanish. I had a flip phone, like a Motorola razor, and I bought a sim SIM card down there.
0: Right. So it wasn't like you were not you weren't completely disconnected. You had a way to call people if you needed something most times?
1: Sure, but not a whole lot of people to call.
0: <laughs> right. right. Have you ever chronicalized this? Written a I know you did like a magazine article. Did you ever write this? Article?
1: I had a blog. But uh, the blog um, kind of fell into the hands of a, of an ex boyfriend who, at first, was eager to keep it running on his server, and then after a while, I think he was a little less eager, and so I lost all the content from it. But um, I I still have something on my laptop, right. Will it ever see a book? That was my original intention. Your guess is as
0: good as mine. (laughs) What are you waiting for, Farrell? Retirement? (laughs) Yeah, well.
1: Got to make money before I can sit on my ass for 50 years.
0: Well, I don't think you plan on sitting on your ass. No. no. Well,
1: on a motorcycle, maybe. (laughs)
0: Listen, the last time I saw you, you were taking golf lessons. So (laughs) I don't see you doing nothing. And then yeah. the last time I saw you, you bought a relatively new-to-you motorcycle, right? Very true. So,
1: yeah. yeah, my my life now ventured from Southern California when I did the podcast to uh, the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. And the riding season here is probably about now through end of September, maybe. And so I don't have 365 days to ride a motorcycle unless I want to ride the rain. And, well, I just choose not to. So between the fact that I needed a, a bike that had a, a few more safety features, such as ABS, some, uh, um,
0: traction well, control and yeah. Yeah, all that,
1: all the, all the new circles that I don't have on my 2005 T100. Um, I wanted to buy a Ducati Multistrada and I couldn't, I knew that the years that I liked riding were like the 15 or the 16, because I had ridden one on a climb marketing shoot I did a while ago. And I also rode one in the uh, North Georgia mountains that was a a friend's. So that was kind of what I was targeting. Mm -hmm. And I also thought, well, if I buy it here in Oregon, I'm just going to let it sit in the garage for six months before I ride it. So how about I buy it somewhere where the sun's shining and then just ride it across country and bring it back to Oregon. Right. And so. at the time I don't think I was terribly comfortable with uh mm-hmm. jumping on international flights, so it seemed like a, a decent way to spend a uh, some travel, some vacation.
0: Yeah. And you had a good trip back from Florida to Atlanta, right? I know you had uh, rain
1: apart, apart
0: from the snow. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah.
1: So I so I bought a 2016 multistrada in Miami with low miles left Miami in a rainstorm, came and hung out with you for a bit, played some golf, and uh, headed up to St. Augustine and then Atlanta. And when I arrived in Atlanta, the temperature was 30 degrees. And there was this little icon on the dash that looked like yellow snow. Like literally their choice of the icon color was yellow and it looked like a snowflake.
0: That's awesome.
1: (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself, that kind of looks like a snowflake. And I'm sure that the folks in Miami aren't going to know what it is because they would have never triggered a snowflake down there. So my fingers were frozen. It was kind of raining. I arrived at my friend's place in Atlanta, threw the side stand down and ran into the house and took a hot shower. (laughs) Didn't even say a word other than I got to I got to go warm up.
0: (laughs) Right. And so you rode the back back to Oregon, right? Or where is it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I went from Miami to Atlanta, parked it, came back to it in April. Went from Atlanta to Los Angeles the month of April. And then came back and grabbed it in Northern California uh, last month. Mm -hmm. And it is back home. And conveniently enough, I haven't told you this yet. When I tried to put it in the shed... The door isn't wide enough.
0: <laughs> so oh, you're be I, kidding me. So
1: I need to install a bigger door. <laughs> I thought
0: that door was pretty big on the shed. It's I remember, 36. That's it?
1: It's just under 36. And even when I have one handlebar in, there's no way I'm going to be able to jockey that thing in the shed. So I'm just. Either gonna go off the recommendation of one of my girlfriends who said, You should just cut out holes for the handlebars to pass through the door. (laughs) (laughs) Or put on the 40 inch door.
0: Oh no. So which (laughs) is sitting outside right now?
1: It it has a nice fancy cover. Okay. So she's protected. Oh but yeah. She got a fresh chain. Fresh, fresh uh, slave to my clutch, uh, slave cylinder, and uh, and a tune, and she came up here to sit outside.
0: <laughs> do you still have the Triumph or not? Yeah, I do. Okay. She she can fit. Yeah.
1: She's just fine. She's been sitting in the garage wondering what's this what's this bitch that's outside. <laughs> right. Like, who's coming
0: into my house? Competing with to, attention. Might have yeah. to shiv her when she gets in here.
1: <laughs> Pretty much.
0: Oh no. Well, I guess that's the adventures of owning a motorcycle, right? Sure. And multiple sure. And the
1: adventures of home ownership and thinking, well, the shed's gonna get demoed at some point, so maybe now's a good time to learn how to hang a door.
0: Oh. You you've got a really cool place. I we visited Christie in two summers ago. No, in twenty twenty, during the pandemic. Yeah. Right? And it was kind of funny. So just to give people the background on how we know each other is through the podcast realm. We'd never met. And then we were all gonna be at the Overland Expo West in Flagstaff in 2014, was it? Or 13, I don't remember. I can't remember. But we were talking on the phone and you made a comment to me that was really funny. You said, well actually this is after we met. So you had never met Chris either. I think Chris rode to your house in LA and then you guys rode to Flagstaff together, right?
1: I rode to his house and then we went to
0: Flagstaff. Okay. And then we we all met in Flagstaff and you told me, you go, I'm the only person on earth that's met both of you because Chris and I had never met prior to Flagstaff. We'd never met each other. We'd only talked on the phone and done the podcast together. So we didn't have any mutual people that we knew at all. You were the only <laughs> one. Then the first one. And I'm like, wait a second, what? And you're like, yeah, I'm the only person that knows both of you. And I'm like, shit, you're right, right? So that was, that was 2000. I don't fucking remember. Like maybe 13.
1: I was sharper back then.
0: Yeah, I can't. Yeah, we were we were younger back then too. Yep um and then you and i met a couple times like on other events in daytona we rode together some other place yeah, rode
1: ducatis actually
0: yeah we rode the diavels in daytona right for a diavel you
1: you might have ridden one i think i rode a hyper
0: oh okay i thought we both rode diavels maybe not what do i know i don't remember anything i just remember they were ducatis yep and then we've had a friendship ever since and uh I completely forgot when we were in Oregon Oregon, that you'd bought in the place in Oregon. And I remember you had sent, Marcy and I were driving and you put a message on Instagram and you're like, oh, so close. And Marcy's like, where is she? I'm like, she's in Los Angeles. It's like 800 miles away. I don't know why she's saying it's close. <laughs> and then a couple of days later, we're in Newport and you call me and I'm like, where are you? And you're like, Newport. And I'm like, Rhode Island? Like, And you're like, no you know I'm in Oregon like and I'm like oh shit you're like right around the corner so that's we ended up hanging out and saw you for a while which was fun and realized like how great Oregon is now I know why you moved there because we literally fell in love with the place especially like bend you know there's just so much outdoor I didn't realize your motorcycle season was so short though
1: well if you don't want to ride in rain it is
0: What about when does it start to get like unbearably cold? Or you don't always get that?
1: Uh, Probably well, unbearably cold for me, it all depends. Since typically it's fifty-five, which is almost the daily temperature. So I'm toughening up a little bit here. But
0: That's cold for me. It was
1: thirty when I was in Atlanta, figuring I was gonna die on this bike. So I'd probably say like fifty would be my my cutoff. Mm, that's pretty. But cool. it would have to not be raining. Yeah. I just why bother? That's my that's my risk averse personality. There. Well, I,
0: in the, listen, in South Florida, it's a daily event, and I used to commute mm. an hour on the bike, and I would get rain all the time. And what's even worse is rain at five thirty in the morning or six o'clock in the morning when you're on the Florida Turnpike. And there's these idiots that are just like going 90 in the rain. You know, they can't They have no visibility. They don't care. I mean, there were a couple of times I was going to work and, and I felt like I was pretty confident, but I got so freaked out. I'd stop at a rest stop or pulled over or got on an exit and took like a surface road somewhere not to, to get off the turnpike because it was, I mean, t- terrifying you know tractor trailers are blowing past you and they're getting pissed off and I mean I literally a couple of times couldn't see even like trying to tuck in behind the windshield of the KTM I couldn't see what I was doing because of so much spray coming off of the wheels and the rain mm-hmm. so that I got used to riding in the rain and that really also solidified my um, choices on gear when it comes to rain because I remember the gear that I had prior to owning the climb gear was stuff that I had to put like a rain jacket on over it or a liner underneath it. And that was just was a complete pain in the ass, especially and I don't remember what brand I had prior to the climb gear. For a while, I was riding an aero stitch, which was OK, like a Darien, which, you know, mm-hmm. is inherently waterproof, but um, it. I don't know. There's something about the arrow stitches for me that were like cumbersome. And the way it was cut, it was bulky. It didn't really fit great. It was uh, just not something that I had made for my specs. I bought it like a rack piece, you know, so Mm -hmm. it wasn't a measured thing. And then whatever I got after that, which I can't remember what it was, required a, a waterproof liner. So in Florida, you know, you'll go from having a torrential downpour to hot weather. And now you're you're taking off your jacket, pulling that liner out, and you're putting a wet jacket back on, like mm-hmm. sopping wet. So that was never a good situation. And then when I, I switched to climb, it was like a complete game changer because now this is inherently waterproof in itself. It's well ventilated. It fit me really nicely. I've heard the stuff from, from Moscow Moto is really nice, the Basilisk stuff, like, Spencer's told me you got to try it. I'll send you some stuff to try. But that's kind of going back to the same thing of having, you know, um, some inner. They're, they're very big on layering and they also don't use built in armor, which honestly, I'm kind of a fan of that. Like, it never seems like the armor's in the right place when you have it built into the jacket, where they're using stuff you're wearing on your body, like Field Force. So it's Mm -hmm. tight to your, it fits on your, any hard parts of your body, like elbows, shoulders, back, and then you're layering what you're wearing, but you're still having to deal with a waterproof outer layer. That's the only difference from them. It's not an inner layer. It's an outer layer. Yeah. Have you tried any of their stuff or seen it?
1: I had up until this moment, no idea that Moscow Moto did anything other than luggage.
0: Yeah, no, they've had a line of of rider gear out for a while called Basilix. It's, it's, Hmm. uh... I actually saw it again. I talked to Pete at the Overland Expo um in Flagstaff, which I was trying to see if you were gonna be there the last time. What was that last month? You were close. I think you ended up in Flagstaff after, right?
1: I didn't even get anywhere near Flagstaff. Oh, you
0: didn't. Okay.
1: Um, I was in Phoenix briefly. But that must have been like the third week of April.
0: Yeah, I can't remember.
1: Probably and I was yeah. and I was sick. You and I texted back so,
0: and forth a little bit because you were like. The
1: gear, the gear that I rode from your place to Atlanta was kind of a combination of an older Revit suit that I have that's Gore-Tex as well as wearing body armor separately from that mm-hmm. because that Revit jacket only had, um, damn it, of course, I'm going to forget what the name of the armor is. The back protector was foam and it was, it was a a very particular shape and it wasn't adequate as a back protector. And because of the shape that the back protector was, you couldn't put anything else in it.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So I just decided to wear something that would be a shirt that would have armor in more places for me. And I gutted that jacket of the armor. And by the time I came back to go get the bike in Atlanta, I had gotten a, a new climb suit. And so I shipped everything back Revit more the climb jacket. And yeah, I mean, it is a game changer, not having multiple layers of things you need to shuffle through your bag to put rain gear on or to uh, open zips or get ventilation. It's, I've always been a big fan of their product, but uh, now more so because the women's gear has kind of gone through multiple iterations where it fits better for me. And at the beginning of that trip, I was probably 135 and I got so sick, I got a cold uh, that I couldn't get rid of. So for two weeks, I was traveling across the country, mostly sideways and lost 15 pounds. So it oh, fit even cow. better. Yeah. By the time I so got none, to Los none Angeles,
0: right now, I tried to put my climb pants on the other day, and it's like wearing a clown suit. I mean, it, <laughs> it doesn't fit at all. It, it's not even close, and which kind of sucks. Including my Dianese leather jacket doesn't fit me anymore. I, I don't really have motorcycle gear that fits, so I may take Spencer up on his offer and get the Basilic stuff to, to try it out. it's Mm -hmm. a shame too, because my client Badlands is like the second iteration of it. And it's literally almost brand new. Well, talk
1: to me offline after after we're done here. I
0: I used the, the original Badlands when I went to on the Continental Divide and fell in love with that gear. Like it was just, it's so versatile for me and it fit me really well. And I was comfortable in it. I never felt overheated you know the ventilation really works well much better than the Arrow Stitch Darian jacket, you know. Just really well designed. We actually had a chance to go to the climb factory and kind of meet some of the designers and hang around and it was I thought it was great. The only thing I like bitched about was the pocket for the on the arm, back then, they made a pocket that was, I guess, initially for a spot device. And we were all, at the time, riding with in-reaches, and none of them fit. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't know why you guys cut this pocket so small. Like, it, it needs to be a little bit bigger. And that, of course, that device has now changed five times, so it doesn't really matter. But as long as you can get it in a pocket somewhere, it's fine. You ride with an in-reach or some sort of satellite? No, nope. I ride
1: with an iPhone. <laughs> Yeah, well, the that's my technological upgrade from yeah, 2007.
0: The problems, the places we were at, there was no cell service at all. So,
1: well, the convenient thing about no cell service is maps.
0: Listen, <laughs> the only thing I know people that have used the InReach for rescue, like broken a leg on a dirt bike, and pressed the button, mm-hmm. and within two hours they were brought out of where they were. So it does work. And sure, but the nice thing about it for like I even use it now when I'm in a remote area where we don't have any cell service just to send there's pre-programmed text in it so we just hit a button and it sends a text to all of our family members that says we're in for the night and we're okay because between me and Marcy we have two kids between the two of us that are worry warts big time (laughs) like the rest of them don't give a crap where we are I could care less if we were gone for three weeks but there are two of them that are like, where were you guys? You know, we didn't we didn't know if you were okay or not. So, we send a text out every night if we don't have cell service that says we're in for the night and we're safe. And it's that's the nice thing about it.
1: Yeah. Nowadays, I well, first of all, I've never ridden a motorcycle in a foreign country and camped. I always stay at some form of a hotel yeah. or a motel or a no tell motel or a sex hotel <laughs> or whatever. That's no sex was being had
0: TMI, Christy. But, TMI. We don't need to know about your no, exploitations in foreign countries. No, and...
1: there, there there is none, but it's convenient because the the sex motels, at least the ones in Venezuela and Brazil,
0: motel?
1: you so the deal is you go to have your discreet encounter. Okay. You drive up A door opens, a garage door opens, you pull your car in, you walk in through uh, another door into the room, and then the person will come and take your money. You say you want two hours, five hours, 24 hours, whatever. But your vehicle is hidden the whole time in a garage. No one knows who came in the car. No one really knows what you look like if you have tinted windows.
0: This, so are you meeting somebody else there? I mean, not you, but is the intent that you go meet somebody else or that's a professional you, that's working there?
1: Um, I don't think they provide those services it's there. I think that go. you've brought someone with you. I the gotcha. car, the garages were never big enough for like two cars. But um, the reason it was attractive to me was because it was a secure place for the bike. Oh, yeah.
0: That makes sense. It, right.
1: It saved me from having to ride it through the front door of a hotel.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know friends of mine who've done foreign countries, and they they were able to, like, pay extra money and have their bike in a lobby, maybe, you know, or roll it into their room.
1: Yeah, Um, I rolled it into the room, which is convenient for a 200, but a little less likely once you start getting up to 1,200 cc's like I am now.
0: Right, right. That bike's going to be a a bit of a challenge to roll into a room, as we found out now with the shed. Yep. Yeah. How big are your doors? (laughs) Right, that's your (laughs) phone call every time
1: i'm looking for a 40 inch
0: (laughs) so you told me a story about um like a national park or forest you were in in venezuela that people were like couldn't believe you rode through it
1: that was in brazil brazil yeah so that was back in an era where i looked at guidebooks um I actually had a guidebook and every time I passed, it was a guidebook, I think for South America. And every time I passed through an area that I had already seen, I ripped out the chunk of the guidebook and threw it away just to minimize weight and stuff.
0: You're very efficient.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we got to the, the part where we got off the boat in Manaus. Um, We went, up the Amazon from Bulem to Manaus and then Manaus North on this highway. And there's this forest. I don't know if I saw it in the guidebook that I had, or one of the guys said something because at the time I was traveling through there, I had two, two guys that I met in Argentina who were decent travel companions and they had said, Oh, you're, you're not supposed to stop here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm like, well, Why? I'm the kid that was asking mom and dad, well, what do you mean I shouldn't touch the stove? Why not? Right. Don't just tell me don't touch the stove. Give me a reason. Right. So they said, just don't stop. Okay. Well, what about if I want to take a picture? It looks nice. It's pretty. Um, So we we stopped on the side of the road, had a picnic. Uh, It was a two-lane road forest all around us really tall trees couldn't see past the first five feet and one of the guys gets up to go to the the bathroom and i scream over to him hey make sure none of the blow darts hit you in the neck when you're standing at the edge of the forest pissing and we carried on through the forest until we got to the um just got to the border of i think it was venezuela and met up with a motorcyclist heading south and he he was talking about the forest and he said did you did you stop because i think i mentioned something about it that's a nice place to picnic <laughs> and he instantly panics and says that the natives did not like the fact that they paved a road through their native territory and that people were getting picked off like ghosts in the darkness uh, that movie I don't know if you saw the movie with Val Kilmer um, but they were putting a, a railroad in, in a part of I can't remember the specific location in Africa it might have been Kenya and they would be killed in the middle of the night while they're you know sleeping so anyway these folks would try to build this highway through uh, a jungle and would literally get killed by cannibal uh, natives
0: and become dinner Yeah, so apparently my comment
1: wasn't too far from accurate when I said don't get a blow dart to the neck.
0: Had you known that going in ahead of time, would you still have the picnic? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) probably. I know you really well. (laughs) You'd have been like, ah, fuck that. It
1: it seemed like a nice place to stop and have a picnic.
0: Right. That's crazy. You don't even think stuff like that happens, but apparently it does.
1: No, Yeah. Well, apparently people take a two-day course and then fly to South America and jump on a motorcycle and just start going.
0: (laughs) You know, the funny thing is I think that was when you did it, it was probably much more of a rarity than it is today. I think more and more people are doing crazy stuff like that. I mean, just think of all the people that you and I know that have done like trips around the world, you know, or spent years on a bike where that was unheard of. A while ago. Yeah. You know, Ted i was yeah, like an anonymous. Honestly
1: though, like I've been probably to more than twenty five countries on a motorcycle. And uh the nuttiest roads that I've had to deal with that made me scared, and maybe it's age, which could be it. I have less of a death wish now. Were the Roads going from Florida across the U.S. right before I hit California. I have, in the U.S., never really spent a lot of time traveling by motorcycle in other states. And the one thing that surprised me is that California has this cap for 18-wheelers. You're not supposed to go faster than, like, 55. Every other state, it's it's open season. That speed limit is merely a suggestion And if you want to pass an 18-wheeler because the wash behind it is too much for you and I feel like a bobblehead, that 18-wheeler is probably going 75 miles an hour, which means that I need to go at least 80 miles an hour to pass him. Mm -hmm. And then you have the, if it isn't the turbulence in the rear, then you've got the part that's coming off the nose right when you're passing him that I typically drop my right shoulder and lean in as I'm passing in order to buy it. I can't tell you how many times where I had wind and I had to pass 18 wheelers one after the other. And I was like, I don't even know what I'm more scared of at this point, like getting tossed or sucked under a truck or getting blown by the wind. Like that was mentally challenging, at least not to mention the fact that I was also sick. So
0: it was, I think, not not my most yeah, te- Texas has the the highest posted speed limits in the US. There's places in Texas where it's posted at 85. Wow. And I remember the, the scared the the most scared I've ever been was on I-10 coming into Houston in the rain again in a thunderstorm really bad with tractor trailers and then I had an issue I was on the Stelvio I had to get the valves adjusted. There was a place just outside of Houston that was a Moto Guzzi repair place that I had made. And I'd called ahead and said, hey, can you take the bike and do a quick valve adjustment? And they're like, yeah, no problem. And I I couldn't get off I-10 quicker because it was so scary. And then once I, you know, the next day I stayed in a place close to there. And when I got on the road, the wind, like you said, was so bad. I was like leaning into the wind. But the one thing I noticed about the tractor trailers in Texas were if you turn put your turn signal on, they'd get over a little bit. They would move off the road a little, like onto the shoulder and let you pass. And I found that's kind of common in Mexico and Baja as well. They had kind of warned us, hey, you know, if you're following somebody slow and they put their left turn signal on on a two-lane highway and there's no left turn, it means they're allowing you to pass. And they would kind of move over. The, the roads in Baja were... Um, crazy because there's no shoulder in most of them. And they're 10 feet wide, the lane, not 12. And Ugh. there's, they're like 20 feet off the ground. Like that's kind of on an anthill sort of with nowhere to go. So there's, you, you can't pull off anywhere. Well, the funny thing is I found that same thing in Utah when we were out in Utah recently, I'm like, wow, these roads are just as bad as Mexico. There's, there's no shoulder, there's nowhere to pull off. And you know, and you got idiots passing you on a double yellow line Luckily, we weren't on bikes, so I felt a little bit more um, safe, I would say. But there was a point where the wind was so bad and the vans got such a high profile that we we ended up getting off the highway. We pulled into some town called Salina and saw a little sign that said, Eyes to the Sky Balloon Festival on the three dates that we were there. So we're like, all right, we're going to go to a balloon festival tomorrow. Well, of course, never put two and two together. The winds were that bad. They weren't going to be flying any balloons. So. <laughs> We went down and you know waited. Anyway, the point of the story was: is I've had some pretty creepy, crazy experiences in the U.S. I've not been in as many countries as you have driving. I can tell you that driving in Montreal was quite fun in the winter time. I was outside of Montreal in a rental car in a place called Contrecoeur and got the car literally stuck on a on a like a back road. I went down this alley and it was icy and the car started to turn and I couldn't stop it and it wedged itself in the street and had to get a wrecker to come and pull like the back end out because I stuck a rental car in the street but
1: I have a similar story on a motorcycle that's a little humorous and maybe short-sighted on both logic and my background in geology but um, it's been a lifelong dream of mine to visit uh, White Sands National Park Mm -hmm. so i was like all right i'm gonna check it out on this trip i got the time i'll just you know whip up from texas hit new mexico keep going well what i didn't realize when i got there is that uh they don't clear the roads when the sand drifts across the road they just leave it i thought maybe the roads would be higher like they are as you were saying in baja so that you don't have that drift problem but uh After I got past the first turnout, I passed a sign that said, how to drive in sand. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) So I pull off into this big turnout that doesn't have a lot of sand on it. And I park and I kind of walk back out to take a look at what the road situation looks like before I get too far in it. And for whatever reason, I asked a guy driving a car, hey, how, how, like, how thick was the sand drift that you just drove through? Was it, like, you know, this much? And I think I held my fingers to represent two inches. And and I... He's like, oh, no, 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 you'll, you'll be fine. It was barely nothing. Like, why would I ever ask a man to tell me whether or not two inches or to show, like, a, a definition of, you know, any sort of length was going to be accurate? Like, I just... I was... Afterward,
0: there you are. I I lost you for a second. Right when you were getting to the good part of the story, I lost you. You're back. Yeah. (laughs) You were talking about length versus girth.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, my my failed attempt at asking a man how how deep the sand was, um, he's like, you should be fine. So I thought, all right, well, maybe I'll be fine. So 20 feet into this sand drift, I decided I ran out of talent 20 feet ago. And when I stopped, it must have been like six inches deep.
0: Yeah.
1: And I'm on pretty slick street tires. Right. And definitely can't do a three point turn. (laughs) Failed miserably at that. So now I'm blocking the road, which is convenient actually, because in order for cars to get around me, they need to help me. So a guy pulls up, says, Do you need help? And I said, Yes. And he gets out, tries to help me and he just wants to get me out of the way as fast as possible. So he's like heaving the back of the bike while I'm giving it a little gas and he's like pushing it a little too hard. Like, I'm like, hey, slow, slow down. Let's slow this process a little bit. And then uh, he was getting frustrated because I wasn't doing this as fast because once we drop it, it's going to be a bitch to pick it up. And I don't want to ding my brand new motorcycle to me. So when a second truck stopped, that guy just said, Oh, you need to go the other way? Sweet. And he just picked me up and faced me in the direction of travel. They're like, Are you sure you're gonna be okay? I'm like, my lack of talent got me the first 20 feet. You guys have been incredibly helpful. I think I can make it out.
0: <laughs> I had the exact same story, but not in sand.
1: Yeah. I, so I yeah. here I am living my my life's dream, trying to recreate a boys to men video back from the 90s. And lo and behold, I'm turning tail and leaving a national park. And I'm also a geologist who knows that sand drifts, but just never really occurred to me that that they would leave it in like six inches. Uh, to be
0: honest you know, with you, I had never seen that until two weeks ago in Utah. You yeah. we went over uh, like a little little hill and I'm like, holy crap, look at all that sand that would suck on a motorcycle. <laughs> I told Marcy that. Like I never I had never seen sand drifting over the highway like that until we were in in Utah and it was I was like, wow, I didn't didn't even think about that.
1: There's yeah. a lot of sand in White Sands National Park. Yeah, well, I guess it would
0: be. <laughs> so have you been there
1: since then? <laughs> well, that was just back in April. Okay. So if I ever go back, I'm gonna take a, a rental car.
0: Yeah. yeah but well, yeah,
1: that well, was good times. I've looked I've lived I've lived for this moment and I'm turning around.
0: So back in like oh three when I had the the uh Suzuki V strom, I was in Georgia doing these fire roads like in the middle of nowhere. And I got over the hill of this fire road and go down the opposite side and it turned into this like giant rock field with all these huge baby heads. And there was no way I could navigate it. Like one, I didn't have the skill set or confidence. Two, I'm on a Multistrada, which isn't a dirt bike of any kind. So I'm pointed down on a pretty, like an eight degree thing going down and I can't go anywhere. There's no, I can't make a three point turn. I'm trying to figure out in my head how I'm going to lay the bike down. Like what's the most, the best way to lay it down so I can turn it around. And I'm thinking, man, there's rocks everywhere. This is going to suck. And all of a sudden a blazer with four giant dudes coming up right behind me. I'm like, oh, no, this is not going to end well. I'm thinking the banjo music's going to start playing. And now I'm going to be somebody's bitch for the night. And these guys it's get out. It's a small out. price to pay if they can turn your Multistrotter yeah. around. I'm these guys saying. get out and they're like, you all right? I'm like, I don't think I can turn around. They're like, hold on. And they all, four guys grab the bike and pick me up with the bike and turn the thing completely around. They're like, can you get out now? I'm like, I'm good to go, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. If I could Sweet. get off the bike and shake your hand, I would, but bye and left. And they were like happy to help me out. But
1: Well, since I'm, since my ego is diminishing by the minute, I'll tell you another story <laughs> <laughs> that, that involves large people and my own shortcomings. Um, the first night I brought my T100 home to my place. And, and when I had, when I lived in Los Angeles, I had a, already had a BMW and a couple other bikes out in my carport. My carport was a raised concrete pad that was like eight inches off the back of the rest of the backyard. And I rode the bike into the carport and kind of had to lean a little bit at an angle because it was already tight and it had just enough room to park. And since it was a new bike to me, I was trying to get the side stand down and it was a little tucked. And in the process of trying to find a side stand, ended up losing the bike
0: I you before I found the side stand, yeah.
1: and it jumped off the eight inch, uh, concrete pad and landed upside down in the dirt in my backyard. And I'm looking at this. I, the first thing I did was, uh, do the fuel kill switch because it's a carbureted bike. And, um, I knew I couldn't call on my friends that I just left because they had been drinking. I had one beer, but uh, that didn't affect the fact that I made this very critical error in my backyard. And now a 500 pound motorcycle is upside down for its first night.
0: (laughs) I remember you telling me this, and I'm thinking, how much, you know, like you, I don't think you ever mentioned eight inches. And I'm thinking, like, five feet i'm like what is she on a hill like she just dumped the bike out of the garage I, and then
1: and the carport didn't provide a good lever arm to try to like lift it with like ropes or something right. in the morning like so i would how have did you do it? pulled the whole carport down well as uh luck would have it i wasn't far from a fire department oh <laughs> so I, I called on the stevens of uh of echo park and uh first thing in the morning I drove, uh, drove over there with my coffee cup and uh, said, hey, so this isn't like a, a cat in the tree situation, but it kind of is. I parked my bike last night and made an error and it's now upside down in my backyard and there's no way I could lift it. There's no way myself and one person could lift it, but I'm thinking three firemen would probably do the trick nicely. <laughs> and so... They said, well, our shift is almost over. We'd be happy to come by, you know, when we're done. I'm, all right, sweet. They bring like a ladder truck with the guy in the back. Like the that toy. thing is double parked yeah. out in front of the house. And I'm glad that I don't really talk to my neighbors because they'd all be wondering what the hell's going on. And uh, they all jump out and they look around and they go back and ride the bike, put it back on the on the carport. And as they're leaving, look over at my front yard and start remarking about how much, because uh, I grew my own vegetables and lettuce and salad greens and kale. And they were just going ape shit over my yard that um, I decided to take them some goodies the next time they turned up on their shift. That's And nice. I was that's trying to think, right, <clears throat> I took some uh, fresh kale and, and salad greens and then I was thinking, well, what? Works what um, dessert can I make that would serve a lot of people and kind of be not too time-consuming? And I didn't even think of the correlation at the time. Making a pineapple upside-down cake was kind of ironic. But that's what I took to them. And then after the fact, my friend was like, do you realize that that was... Completely ironic that you brought them kind of something along the lines of what happened. Yes. If you would okay, have thought no, about I, it
0: and you put a little plastic motorcycle on the thing upside down, that would have been perfect. Right, exactly. Yeah. No, that's great. So I've been meaning to ask you this question for a long time. Bucket list bike. We've never talked about this. Money's not an object. Bucket list bike. Mm,
1: probably the, I think it's like a 73 750 SS. Ducati. Seventy-three.
0: Seven fifty. Seven fifty
1: super sport. There's one of them in Barber.
0: So I took a bunch
1: of pictures of it.
0: Really? I gotta go look that one up now. It's a beautiful,
1: it's the beautiful fairing single large uh headlight. Um All silver. It's kind of the one that Paul Smart, the Paul Smart replica was based on. Right,
0: right. I love that. Matter of fact, I found I was on Google Photos today looking at old pictures and I had pictures of a Paul Smart bike on there, which people told me was like the most uncomfortable bike to ride.
1: Oh, I'm sure it was. Because it was I think it was a Mola, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. That that bike was ridden around a mola and then a replica of it. And the frame is like a minty green
0: yeah it's just cool. a beautiful bike. super beautiful bike like i love the way that thing looks i mean listen my the moto gucci is not the most comfortable thing to ride either but i like the bike so i was thinking about this the other day because i was going to ask you that question and um it's funny because usually people like us will always say an older bike not something that's new because we can go buy this thing that's new and it it the, the, the shine wears off the penny really quick on new bikes sure. for me
1: well the shine might wear off the penny on that on that 750 ss pretty fast too but especially since that thing is anywhere between 150 and 250 thousand dollars, but um yeah. Yeah. it might not even be comfortable it might be a horrible ride but man that thing is just est- aesthetically flawless in my opinion
0: so mine is a bike that I've already owned and I want it back it's an the 83 CB 1100F Honda that I had. I just constantly think about how much I enjoyed riding that motorcycle and how comfortable it was and how fast it was, you know. And uh, if the opportunity presents itself, I, I'm if I find one at a good price it's in good condition, I may buy another one. But that's going to be after I sell the KTM. I'm just not, I, I don't really... I don't see myself riding that anymore, especially doing another long-distance adventure ride. I'm getting too old for, you know, wiping out in the dirt. So, on um, a big head motorcycle. Yeah. I, honestly, I know myself. And even if I was on something with a smaller displacement, I'd probably push it a little too hard and ride too hard and get hurt. The, the Moto Gucci, I love riding because it's a, a very visceral experience. It's like riding an R BMW, you know, it's got that. That shaft jacking to one side, when you give it fuel, the bike kind of moves to one side because of the configuration of it, and it sounds great, and it's good for about an hour, and then my neck and back are killing me. It's clip-ons. But the KTM, that's that's going to be gone soon. I, I'm going to get it ready for sale. Wow. Yeah. I I, I want to get uh, something else. Maybe it will be a, the 1100F. I don't know if I find one. There's a couple guys down here that have them for with that are in the vintage motorcycle club I'm in, and they're prime examples. Like these guys restored them back to original. Um, so that may happen someday. I'm so thinking about it. The
1: one at the one at Barber is a 74 750
0: SS. 74 750 SS.
1: And I'll shoot you if actually I'll just text you this photo,
0: okay. It's yeah, a pretty listen,
1: gorgeous piece of machinery.
0: Oh, it looks exactly like it. Oh, that thing's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd own that in a heartbeat.
1: Yeah, now it's pretty. <clears throat> uh, you know, I'm kind of less discriminatory about riding motorcycles. Like, what do you like? What's comfortable? Well, as long as I'm not... In a forward seated position, like I prefer more upright, because when you start tipping the the body posture so that the weight is in my elbows and my wrists, and I'm forward leaning, it's less comfortable for me on long rides.
0: I think everyone would agree with you that that's the the case. It it when you start putting weight on. And you know, like guys I know that race are like, well, I'm not putting any weight on my wrists, I'm laying on the tank, you know, or I'm using my core and then my knees are kinda like hugging the tank. It's not a comfortable position to ride in. What I find extremely uncomfortable though is the feet forward position of like a Harley, let's say with forward controls. I cannot ride like that at all. That's it's also, to me, it feels counterintuitive to riding the motorcycle.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it's probably the same way I feel about ape hangers. It's How much control do you actually have when your body parts are splayed really far away from the engine? Right. But at the same time, even on the Ducati, I might have to adjust the seat and have it be a higher seat, which would mean that I'm even more tippy-toed than I already am. But, um, my legs get a little crampy.
0: Yeah, no, I know. And it's the the one or two bikes that I've owned where I could ride long distances on them and be comfortable was the KTM. And I had an ST 1300 Honda that was super comfortable to ride for long distances. The Moto Guzzi Stelvio had the world's worst seat on it. It was very <laughs> uncomfortable to ride. It also generated a lot of heat. Um, the V-Strom was not bad. You know, again, the sh- it was a shitty seat, but that's such a subjective thing because I know people that get on seats and they're like, oh, that thing is super comfortable. And then I'll ride it and be like, you got to be kidding me. Like that's more key See, sod.
1: the fix in South America is to pile more dead animal skins on it.
0: Yeah, some of the long distance guys I know, the Iron Buck guys are like big into that crap too with the sheep skins and all that stuff, like more and more of that. I even tried, um, seat beads, which worked for a while, you know, like the, like car seat beads.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, <laughs> they, believe it or not, I know it sounds funny, but it's, it helps ventilate. <laughs> and then, uh,
1: I, I think tried, I would die if I saw that on a motorcycle.
0: It's, 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 I got it from some of the iron butt guys and they Ribbed were like, for your pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you were going to go somewhere with that. Um, <laughs> The one thing that was the most ridiculous thing was the air hawk. Have you ever tried one of those? I have. So I made the mistake, and when I bought the air hawk, I didn't read the instructions, and I like filled the thing completely up, like I was riding on a balloon, and I kept like rolling off the seat. And then somebody's like, "No, man, it's like two puffs of air, and that's it." And I'm like, "Oh, okay." But even then, I didn't really care for it. It wasn't my cup of tea. It, it uh, actually. It got me through the state of Florida and Louisiana on the on the Stelvio until I found something else. But yeah, typically I've always had somebody make me a seat. You know, like not Corbin because I'm not a Corbin guy, but somebody else. And for the life of me, I can't remember the guy's name. They had.
1: Why no. lost <clears throat> on that ride between? Atlanta and Los Angeles. That fifteen pounds was fifteen pounds of TNA. So I've lost some of my padding.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I'm with you. I know how that feels. And I didn't have any padding back there to begin with. I have that dreaded disease of no ass at all. Sure. So now that I've lost sixty five pounds, it's even worse, and it's like Mr. Bony Butt. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I get it completely.
1: Well, that was more of a feature that I think was a preferred element of my shape. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> a lot less than both. See you ends. Since you lost fifteen it's pounds. Sad. All right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think that definitely contributed to me flying across the highway once I got to the 10 around like Blythe. Cause I couldn't keep the bike on the road. I kept the bike on the road but was scared out of my mind the entire ride across the country. And then once I got to Palm Desert, Blythe area. Mm -hmm. The bike was sliding sideways across the highway with me on it, still at an angle. And I was like, I don't really know if I can keep going on. And uh, I didn't realize I'd lost 15 pounds, which probably helped keep me a little more grounded in the other parts of the country. But um, I had two people I was thinking about calling, one that could actually help me and find someone to dispatch a, a truck or a car. And then the other one I knew was going to tell me to suck it up. And so I called him instead.
0: (laughs) And then you sucked it up and finished it. Yeah.
1: Basically. Yeah. I sat there, got my, got my tears out in a parking lot next to, I think it's like general Patton's tank farm. That's somewhere out off of, um, off the 10 and, uh, jump back on the bike. And honestly, I had passed 95% of the wind so that by the time I got my tears out, um, there wasn't that much left.
0: Yeah. Listen, people who've never ridden in high wind before do not know what it's like. They're, they're listening to us. If they haven't experienced it, it's, it's tough. It's a lot of work.
1: Well, and the only way that I've ever been able to manage it effectively without losing the bike is to stand on the pegs, but the balls of my feet are on the pegs. My butt is not on the seat and I'm tucked underneath the windscreen. So, basically, all of my weight is going through the foot pegs. I don't have any weight on the seat. Right. And while that makes sense and it keeps, you know, the center of gravity close to the engine, the problem is that it burns your quads really fast yeah. <laughs> to yeah. not have any relief and to be tucked. And so, it's, it's, it's exhausting. And if you have high winds like I had when I was in New Mexico, I actually had to cancel my hotel because I literally couldn't go any further. It was 50-mile-an-hour gusts. And and that pretty much I, – I saw the writing on the wall pretty fast and was like, yep, I guess I'm stopping in Santa Fe. There could be worse places to get stuck. And um,
0: where else? Was sure, that? I wish I would have known you were stopping there. I had a friend there that I would have hooked you up with. She's uh, fantastic. And she's actually from L.A. originally. Nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's, there is somewhere else where I had wind issues. Um, Oh yeah. Probably in like Arkansas and Texas, the wind was so bad. I was afraid that if I were to just stop for a couple seconds on the side of the road that I would blow over. Yeah. And if I were to put it on the side stand, then I would have to get it up off the side stand and go fast enough from a stop in order to have enough momentum to not also blow over. So Mm. It was just, you're trying to weigh out your options when you're in the wind and you end up checking all the boxes of, I just can't stop. Right. I just have to figure out how to press on and, and suck up the fear and just keep going. Right. And on that bike compared to like the Triumph or some other ones, um, I think that bike is heavier than the Triumph and heavier than the BMW that I used to ride. So I think that also helps keeping it planted and the 1,200 cc's behind it also not a bad thing.
0: I I would rather do it on that type of bike than on the Triumph, honestly. I think that's safer. All right. So we've been almost an hour, over an hour, but I'm mm going to ask you one more question. What is the next big trip you got planned, if at all?
1: Well, shoot! We didn't even talk about the TD.
0: <laughs> Let's we'll save that because Crash is. You want to come back?
1: Sure. Okay. Why not? Cause
0: we'll, that's a big thing. we haven't me and you really even haven't talked about that since no. And there's, so what she's talking about is the uh, Isle of Man. Isle of Man, and she went, and we're going to talk about. We'll save that for the next show. Um, but next big trip on the bike, not in general on the bike. No.
1: Um. You know, I'm probably going to do some small stuff in Oregon just while I'm here and while I can enjoy riding in a state that I've lived in for like two years but have yet to really ride in um, since I've been off a motorcycle about as long as I've been off that podcast, um, which has been like two to five years. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if things go the way that they're currently planned, I have some work in Europe, uh, riding motorcycles. So, uh, we'll see how that shakes out. But, um, we talked about that, that. And if you go to, Europe, yeah.
0: I'm going to, we'll, we'll be hanging out with you.
1: If that happens, well, this is different. If that happens with, uh, with work and riding, then it's going to be the last two weeks of August. Oh, you're talking and about
0: a, a business, a work. Trip. Yeah. Okay. I business gotcha. stuff. Right, right,
1: right. Um, So I'll ride for two weeks and it's front of camera stuff. So I'm going to have to remember how to give an interview and talk eloquently and not drop the F-bomb. Outside of that, though, if I'm already there, I might as well stick around for a couple weeks because my birthday is in September. So I think I'll probably either try to negotiate my way to keep that bike or rent another one and just kind of putt around, depending on wherever we're at.
0: Okay. All right. Well, and I don't have anything to tell you about one well, my tank trip on a bike. I wanted to go to Barber and bring the Moto Gucci to Barber trailer it there, which may still happen, but there may be a trip I might be making out to California for another expo. So I don't know yet. It's, that's in October.
1: Um, well, if you go to Barber, let me know because the uh, that museum is just incredible, and if you can get into uh, a, a different segment of the museum. I've been uh, which downstairs.
0: I, I've been in the basement. Not the basement. No. Which one are you talking about? No.
1: Oh, Before I mess up. So the So when exact I went there title.
0: on a press pass for the vintage motorcycle show, I got a tour of the basement where the where they did all the restoration and where the three they had a three D printer that printed in metal down there when I went, which mm-hmm. was really kind of state of the art at the time. It was pretty neat. I met George Barber then which I love the museum. It's great. I'll tell you a really quick, funny story. There was a guy I was there with that was a member of the Ducati Club, this guy named Chet Litwin, who's an older guy. And I think when we were there, Chet was probably in his 70s. And he's got this huge uh, collection of restored Ducatis at his house that look like they just came off the showroom floor. I mean, they're absolutely amazing. And he's also done an Alfa Romero. They're just beautiful stuff that he has. So him and his wife were there and I kind of saw them and I'd just been to the museum and I don't know if they still have it there, but when I was there, there was a Lotus collection in the museum of some Lotus race cars. You remember that?
1: If they're there, they're probably in the basement.
0: Okay. So they, these at the time were on the second floor and they had the Johnny player special formula one, which was this black and gold car. And, uh, goes, did you see the Lotus? display i'm like yeah it was pretty cool he's like yeah did you see my picture and i thought he was joking and i'm like yeah yeah yeah, i saw your picture you know and uh the next day i went back and there's a picture of the team from that year and he's one of the mechanics in the photo (laughs) as a young man and i went back i'm like you weren't kidding he's like no i was a mechanic on that team for for the johnny players but i'm like wow so it was kind of crazy you know i i Barber's like one of my favorite places. Well, if you're a motorcycle enthusiast, why wouldn't it be, right? I mean, it's sure. just really cool. And
1: and Barber himself is not a motorcycle guy. He's a car guy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But
1: right. he likes he likes design. So Brian Case is one half of Motus. Okay. The f- former motorcycle manufacturer. And he went to work for Mr. Barber within the Barber Museum. And he now has what's called the Barber Advanced Design Center, and that's located on like, uh, like a mezzanine floor. So I want to say it's like the fifth or something like that. I Maybe. And able
0: to, yeah, go ahead.
1: They have their they have their own little uh, clean room area, and it does have a print, uh, a three D printer. But this thing's massive and probably more up to date than the one that you yeah. saw.
0: The one I saw was, it was a long time ago, and it was printing in sintered metal, like a brake pad kind of material. Yeah. It was, this was a while ago. So I'll tell you, you know, the other half of MODIS, I'm not going to mention the name, but that is the one of the founders of Storyteller Overland, the van that I have. Ah. I found this I out recently, kind of by accident, when we were at a van rally, a bunch of guys pull up on Ducati motorcycles, and one of them was like, you know the connection, right? I'm like, no. And they're like, Birmingham, Alabama, you know, this guy, they mentioned the guy's name. I'm like, yeah, I know that name from Modus. And they're like, yeah, he's the the quiet partner of Storyteller, like the other guy. They said the first couple vans were built in the old Modus factory. So wow. I'm like, wow, that's pretty, pretty crazy coincidence. But so, yeah. Uh, anyway, I know a bunch of my friends who bought Modus don't want to talk about it, and they're all like been out of shape, so I'm like to go there, but you know, it is what it is.
1: Well, the original Modus is still at uh, the museum. Actually, it's uh, near the entrance of the Advanced Design Center. Yeah,
0: it's like when but I yeah. almost bought an EBR, and I'm glad I didn't. But now I heard they're re- they're selling them again, but which is weird. So that's all I got for now. Listen, I thank you for uh, filling in for Crash. You're much better looking than he is. Um, I'd rather <laughs> talk to you than, than him. But me and you are pretty close friends. So.
1: Especially with that porn stash, if that's what he's yeah, after.
0: Yeah, it's kind of it's very off-putting and frightening a little bit. You know? Looks like he might be dragging you into a white van with no windows. Help me push <laughs> the sofa in here. <laughs>
1: As long as there's candy. No, I'm kidding. I don't even <laughs> eat sugar anymore. I haven't even told you I, I'm vegetarian, but we'll we'll source that what? on a on another. What? Uh, hey, the last time I saw you, you had some crazy dietary restrictions. I still so. do.
0: That's why I'm still trying to lose another 10 pounds. But I think I've yeah. just become addicted to it now. Anyway. We'll save all this for the next show. Hopefully, we'll be able to record in a couple weeks. Um, I apologize for not getting a show out since whenever it was. You know, you guys follow us on all the social media. We're on iTunes. You want to leave a comment on there. We'd appreciate it. You can find us on Instagram at uh, Two Wheel Studios, The Motorcycle Show. We're on Facebook. And Christy, if there's anything you want me to put in the show notes for what you're doing, I don't think you care right now, do you? No, I didn't think not so. Not particular.
1: I'm not doing anything exciting.
0: Right? Well, you are. It's just not that you're going to share with anyone. So, but
1: I hope I'm at least somewhat entertaining to your audience. So,
0: I can guarantee you, you are better than me and Crash. <laughs> so, and we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about the TT on the next show. And that's Sweet. all I got. So, hey, get out there and ride.